able, please rise once more out of respect for God's word as I read to you Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. This is the inspired word of God. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return? Turn for his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray once more with me? Lord, open our eyes, we pray. Open our eyes that we may see your truth. Give us clarity. And cause us to be like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, today's text is a very important text in the Gospel of Mark. It, it serves as kind of a hinge text. You know how a hinge works. Just think of a door hinge. Uh, it, it has two parts. One that is connected to the door and one that is connected to the door frame. And the hinge itself exists to hold those two things together that they might work one with the other, right? That's what it does. It holds the frame and the door together and, and together they, they comprise and do the work of a door, opening and shutting, closing off people, letting people in. In much the same way, the Gospel of Mark has two parts with today's text holding the two together so that they might work and do their jobs. The first part starts at the beginning 
of Mark and runs through uh, verse 26 of chapter 8 and deals primarily with the identity and authority and power of Jesus as the Messiah. We've seen this throughout uh, the, the past number of weeks as we've marched through Mark. We've seen any number of miracles that Jesus has done demonstrating his authority and his power, how he has power over all things. There's nothing that does not fall under his authority in all of creation. And compared to the other Gospels anyway, we've seen in this part of Mark comparatively very little teaching and a whole lot of action. Mark has Jesus doing things and showing his power. The hinge comes today is specifically in Peter's confession, this, this high point of scripture from verse 27 to verse 30. And then the second part of Mark starts in verse 31. And from that point on, we see a shocking revelation. Namely that the Messiah must suffer. His path is, is not a path of power, but a path of suffering. Not because he does not have power. He's already demonstrated that in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. He has unlimited power. But his path is one of suffering because he has chosen to set aside that power, to not exercise that power, and instead follow that path of suffering of his own free will, because that is precisely why he has come. That's what Isaiah the prophet told us in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so, with all of this in mind, just consider this simple outline. We, we live in a, a world that is often hazy, often blurry, often confusing, but Jesus brings clarity. He brings clarity specifically to the eyes of the blind. He brings clarity to the nature of his mission. And finally, he brings clarity to the cost of discipleship. So first, Jesus brings clarity to the eyes of the blind. Uh, this is the second of two healings that are sandwiched around an event, we'll recall. Um, <clears throat> these two healings, these two healings, the healing of the deaf man and the healing of this blind man are, are healings that appear in Mark's gospel, but interestingly enough, not in any of the other gospels. And it causes us to ask, well, why is Mark including these two healings? Why is he, he putting these here specifically in his gospel? What, what is it that has caused him to, to include these in all the other gospel writers not to? He must have a specific purpose. And we mentioned that last week, didn't we? That, that his purpose in this was was that he was sandwiching this around Jesus' proclamation to the disciples that they were spiritually deaf and they were spiritually blind, and yet he sandwiches around the healing of a deaf man and the healing of a blind man to encourage them and us with them that even for those who are maybe a little slow spiritually, right, who do not hear the truth, who do not see 
the truth. So long as we have Jesus with us, there is hope for us. And today's text fills that out a little bit. They come to Bethsaida. And this is a place uh, that has seen lots of works done. Mark, uh, or Matthew 11 and Luke 12, in both of those passages, Jesus tells, uh, says to Bethsaida, woe to you, Corazon, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He says there's been magnificent miracles that have occurred here, one after another. And this miracle we look at today is one of those miracles as these people bring this blind man to Jesus. And he, he takes the blind man, we see, by the hand in verse 23. And I, I just want to pause there for a second. What a beautiful touch by Mark who, who doesn't use extra words. He doesn't include unimportant details. He, he gets right to the point. He moves quickly through things. And yet he says that Jesus took him by the hand. The tender love of our Savior taking him by the hand and leading him. And Jesus stands there ready to take your hand as well. Right? Jesus, Jesus is there for you. If you feel lost, if you feel neglected, if you feel, feel in need, if you feel like all the world is dark around you, Jesus is there. Chris just sang a minute ago, right? Reach out for Jesus. He's reaching out for you. He is there for you. Secondly, he, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. That's important here in, in this passage. It lets us know that he is not doing this miracle uh, to impress the crowds, right? Because he, he takes him away from the crowds, out away from the village. He's not doing it, I would argue, even for the, the sake of the man who he's healing. Now, that might seem odd. Well, well why is he doing it if he's not doing it for him? I think it's primarily something he is doing for the disciples because he wants to teach the disciples something. And, and it's always good to remember that not everything that happens in our life that happens to us is all about us, right? That's the way we receive it. Lord, why did that happen to me? What is it that you're trying to teach me? What are you trying to accomplish for me? And those are good questions to ask, but the answer might sometimes be, Nothing really. I'm actually doing something in this other person's life that necessitates me doing this in your life. Right? There are times that that happens. The Lord is moving in our lives because we live in community with one another. We live in relationship with one another. We live as one body, and each part of the body affects each other part of the body. Right? Have you ever had it where you've had, like maybe you've had a, 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 a sprained ankle, right? You sore ankle, and so... So, you know, you're limping, right, because your right ankle's sore. And what ends up happening? Well, gosh, my, my left hip ends up sore or, or something like that. Another part of your body ends up sore because of what happened down here, right? Everything is connected, right? They're, they're, all the pieces are interconnected. And so sometimes God is doing things in your life, even huge and amazing things, because he has a purpose in somebody else's life that he is trying to ultimately accomplish. Therein lies the key to the understanding of what is about to happen here. Jesus spits 
on the man's eyes, lays his hands on him and says, do you see anything? And just as with the, the deaf man before, we see this saliva thing and it's kind of weird for us, but the common understanding of that day was that there were healing, healing uh, uh, abilities found in saliva. And so Jesus condescends and kind of shows them in there. Because remember, Jesus didn't even have to touch him. He didn't have to do anything. He's, he's healed other people just by walking by them and they've reached out and touched his garment. Or even just by saying to the person, your, your faith has healed him. Go and be fine. You, you know, you, you believe. He doesn't need to even be there. There's times that he heals people without even being present with them. Jesus didn't need to do that. He's doing that to, to accommodate the people around him. He looked up. The man did, we see in verse 24, he says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And if you've got perfect sight, maybe you don't understand this at all. But if you're like me and you are wildly nearsighted, then maybe you understand. You know, I wear contacts now, but if I took my contact lenses out, I, I could see that there are a bunch of people here. But I wouldn't be able to recognize who is who. Right? Because you just be kind of these blurry masses to me this far away. As I'd look at you, and, and so if you were standing and walking around, I, I'd see kind of this blurry mass, you know, a, a column, maybe, like a tree trunk, right, that's just moving around. And that's the idea here. He's saying, I see this blurry something. It's, it's kind of like looking at a tree, a tree trunk, you know, this, but, but it's just moving around, and, and I, I can't see anything more clearly than that. I, I uh, see here that Jesus, Jesus in verse 25 laid his hands on him again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. I, I went to the eye doctor uh, uh, about a month ago, last month. And uh, when I went in, uh, he did that, he did that test. I hate this test. Is one or two? Which one's better? One or two? Okay, three or four? Okay, five? You guys know the test, right? I, I hate it because I'm always afraid I'm going to get the wrong answer, right? You know, I, I'm going to give him the wrong answer. Or, or maybe he's just playing a joke on me and they're like the same thing or, you know, and, and, and he's going to trip me up because I'm going to say, oh, four is definitely better. He's like, ah, oh, they're actually the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm just worried about it. I just, I get to, and it made matters worse for the rest of my life in that when I went last month, he said one or two, and I, and I legitimately couldn't tell the difference. He said, well, let's try three or four. And again, I couldn't tell the difference. He said, well, how about five or six? And I couldn't tell the difference. And he said, well, let's, let's clean this off. Let's try again. He cleaned off, did it again. Still, I couldn't tell the difference on any of them. And he, he, he said, well, sometimes what happens? He says, have you had your contacts in for a long time? I said, yeah, I've had them in all day. It's the end of the day. He said, do you wear them? I said, yeah, I basically wake up, put them in, wear them all day long, take them out to go to sleep. And then, you know, so I wear them for, he says, well, it could be because, you know, it kind of messes with your eyes and molds your eyes to its shape. And so let's do this. Come back a second time. Come back a second time, but that time don't wear your contacts the day before, uh, you know, or that day. Let your eyes just kind of rest. And, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have a second appointment. We'll try to look at it and see if we can get things working 
then. And, and I did, and we came back, and everything worked fine. And, and I could tell, you know, one was better than two, and three was better than four, and, and six was better than five. And we were able to get everything right. And now he's, you know, gave me a new prescription, and now I'm going to be able to see all better because of that second time we came back. But Jesus doesn't normally need a second time, does he? Jesus normally does a miracle, and there it is. But this time, and only this time, Jesus does the partial miracle, <laughs> but it doesn't quite get there, and then he needs to tweak it and make it better. Why is this happening? Well, I don't think it's because Jesus didn't have his miracle working hand calibrated correctly, right? And it wasn't because there was something in the guy that was, a, again, I think it's because he's trying to teach the disciples something. Jesus is trying to teach them, and he's trying to teach us, that even though he gives us spiritual sight, he gives us eyes to see, that that doesn't mean that immediately we see all things clearly. Right? He gives us eyes of faith to apprehend the truth. But when we come to faith, and we see him for who he is, that doesn't mean we have everything down pat, that our theology is perfect, that we understand everything rightly, and that we go about our life living perfectly from that point on. We know that's the way it is. We, we continue to sin. We, we, we see that our sanctification is a process, our growth, right? Uh, Sanctification, uh, what, what exactly is sanctification? The shorter catechism says it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. You see that idea of more and more. It's a continual thing. It continues to happen. We continue to progress in our growth and our understanding and our holiness and our righteousness. And that's what God would have for us. So by his grace, he progressively gives us a vision that can see, but we gain more clarity of vision as we continue to walk with him, as we continue to know him and see him. And the more clearly we see him, the more we become like him. And that's what John says in 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right? The seeing him as he is actually transforms us and, and makes us into Christ-likeness. So we need this process to take place, but as it does, remember that it is a process. We've not yet arrived. This sets the scene for what happens in what many consider the heart of Mark's gospel here in these next few chapters. As Jesus brings clarity to the nature of his mission. Right? He sends them sends the man home, says don't even go to the village, and then Jesus and the disciples go up to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And you'll remember back in Mark chapter 6, we kind of had this discussion a little bit, didn't we? Because Herod thought that, that Jesus was probably John the Baptist, who had 
who had come back from the dead after he had killed him. And, and others thought Elijah, other the prophets, right? That's what, that's what different people are thinking. And that's indeed what the disciples say at this point. But Jesus, um, Jesus says to them here, but, but who do you say that I am? And the, the structure of it in the Greek, the, the, the structure is an emphatic structure. He's like, he's like but, but what about you? You! Okay, all those other people say all those things, those, those crazy things, those wild things. I don't care about that. I want to know what you think. Who do you say that I am? And it's a question that we each must answer. In fact, it's the most important question that you will ever answer. Literally, life and death hang in the balance of your answer to this question. Who do you say Jesus is. Last week we talked about how Mark had had the healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man to demonstrate that there was hope for those who were spiritually deaf and spiritually blind like the disciples and like us, right? And so we see that hope begin to bear some fruit right here in today's text. Just verses earlier, Peter was was among those disciples who Jesus had disappointedly proclaimed deaf and blind. But here he answers that question. Who do you say that I am? He answers, of course, not just for himself, but on behalf of the 12. He's the spokesman. Peter comes forward and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one sent of God, the anointed one. This is who you are. It's a, a, a bold confession, the likes of which we've not yet seen from the disciples. It is, it is the correct answer. I hope it's the answer that you give when you're answering that question. Who do you say Jesus is? He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. That is who Jesus is. And it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of personal preference right? I like this Savior, but, but you like that Savior, and that's right. No. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the only one who can do this. He is the Christ. And Mark is characteristically brief as he tells about this here. In Matthew's gospel, though, he goes in a little bit more detail. And one of the things he says is that Jesus responds to, to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For Simon Barjona, actually, remember, Simon was his name originally. Barjona means son of John. So he's just referring to Peter here. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, it was God who opened your blind eyes and allowed you to see this truth. It was, it was God who miraculously did this. And if we see spiritual truth, if we proclaim Jesus as the Christ, then we too have been touched by God and given spiritual eyes, eyes that can see, eyes of faith, eyes to apprehend what he would have us see. And so he strictly charged them at this point, we see in verse 30, not to tell anyone about him. Why? It's because they still had a lot to learn. They still had a lot to learn about who he was. And in verse 31, he began to teach them what it was they had to learn, that the Son of Man had to suffer many things, be rejected and be killed even. 
before rising. He said this plainly. He was very clear. The way of the Messiah is the way of suffering. And Peter takes him aside at this point. He's like, whoa, 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 wait, Jesus. Wait a second. You got this wrong, Jesus. Mr. Christ, Mr. Messiah, let me, let, let me tell you what's right. I mean, it's amazing, the, just the, the fickle nature of Peter here. And we, if we're honest, recognize it in ourselves, don't we? Right? In one breath, you are the Messiah. I am worshiping you. And then the next breath, but let me fix the way you are here. Let me correct you. Let me tell you how to be God. Jesus is having none of it. So he turns and sees his disciples and rebukes Peter. And it's amazing because, right, just a minute ago he said, you know, you are blessed of God, Peter, because God has revealed this truth directly to you. And now what does he say to him seconds later? Get behind me, Satan. Talk about a whiplash, right? I mean, doesn't it seem a little bit harsh? I mean, couldn't Jesus have been a little bit more gentle there? I mean, why, why is he calling him Satan? Well, it's because Peter is encouraging Jesus to forego the cross. He's saying, he's saying let's avoid this whole suffering thing certainly would be more pleasant for Jesus to forego the cross. But it's the very reason he came to go to the cross. And so, and so Jesus has heard this before. You remember his temptation? You remember as he's in the wilderness with Satan and, and, and Satan comes to him, Matthew 4, we read about it in verse 8, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all this I will give to you, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Remember, Adam's task was to hold dominion over the creation and he had failed in that, right? And, and so the, the creation kind of spiraled out of control, right? And so in a very real sense, Satan held dominion as the prince of the power of the air. And he comes to Jesus and says, I'll cede all of this dominion to you. You can have it. No problem. I'll step out of the way. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. No cross, no pain, no suffering, no death. It's an easy road, Jesus. Take it. But Jesus says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God alone and serve him only. And he responds similarly here. Get behind me, Satan. He tells Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so it's absolutely true that, that God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. But just like the blind man who, who saw but didn't see, Peter was seeing but not seeing. Right? Because like the leaders of Israel, Peter expected a Messiah who would come and conquer Rome. There would be a, 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 a big war that would break out. The good guys would win, of course, behind Jesus. He'd be crowned king. And, and he would be this military emperor over, over the land like David had been. 
many centuries before, but Jesus had far loftier goals than this. He wasn't interested in, in political purposes. He came instead like the prophets of old to call man to repent, to turn back to God, to, to be right with God so that his kingdom might come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He was not merely looking for an earthly kingdom, but ultimately was looking to set all of the earth right with God. This is why he says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Right? It's only natural that we have our mind set on the things of men. We, men, we, we, we see the world from, from our own perspective. We, we naturally think about things in such a way that, that what is most important for us is probably what's best what's best for us, right? We, we just, we think it's best and so it's best. And so we, we dress it up in, in terms like fairness and rightness and, or even in religious garb and we, we decide whatever it is that we want to make us happy is what we should get. We want what we want, but Jesus does not want to give us what we want. He wants to give us what we need. And what he says we need is to become like him. And so he works in us. Even, even as our vision is blurred, he works to make it more clear. John Newton, you know the story of him, the author of Amazing Grace. He was, uh, he was in his past a uh, captain of a slave ship, right? And, and uh, many years later, having come to Christ, having entered the ministry, he wrote, those famous words, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But what you might not know is the timeline in our mind, I think, goes, you know, he was captain of a slave ship, he came to faith, and then he wrote those words. But that's not, that's not the timeline. The timeline was this. He came to faith. He was captain of a slave ship. <laughs> then he went on to later become an abolitionist and, and help abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire. It's like, well, wait a second. Came to faith and then became the captain of a slave ship? Yeah. He had eyes that had been given to him that saw, but they didn't see quite as clearly as they should have. And that's how we are. We need to be growing daily, learning more, having Jesus teach us. We need to learn to die to ourselves. We have uh, a clarity that we need. Jesus brings clarity to the cost of discipleship. Right? We, we have immeasurable blessings to being a disciple. Peter says in this great mercy, he has given us new birth to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's a wonderful thing, right? This inheritance that is ours, we, we look forward to that, and it's a wonderful thing. It is a glorious thing. We like to think about those things, and we should. We have a well-developed theology of glory, I think. But sometimes we lack the theology of the cross, right? He called the crowd with him and his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Luke tells us that he says we must take up our cross daily. We must daily die to ourselves. 
not doing what we want, but doing what Jesus wants, living for him and not for ourselves. Whoever loses his life or saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, it's counterintuitive, but Jesus says, if you really want to live, then you have to stop trying to live life on your own terms. Right? He says, give up on life as you know it. Live the life that I have for you. Now, it will be costly. It will be very, very costly. Because it costs you your very idea of life. But it is worth it. So I want to ask you this question. What has it cost you to follow Jesus? And if you can't think of anything, as you think about it, hmm, hmm, can't think of anything that's really cost me. You might want to consider if you're really following Jesus. Because it will be costly. It will cost you. But it is worth it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul, he says. For what can a man give in return for his soul? The famous Jim, uh, Jim Elliott quote, right? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so following Jesus means we will have struggles and difficulties. It will be hard. It will be painful at times. Right? We read earlier Paul writing from a prison cell about to be killed, about to die, pouring out his very life. We might face that. Not likely quite so bad, but there will be a cost. But this must not dissuade us. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this day, let us pray for clarity. Let us pray for clarity to know that you cannot save yourselves but can only find salvation in Christ Jesus. Let us pray for clarity to know and be humble enough to realize that you still have room to grow, that you don't have all the answers, that, that pray for spiritual vision to grow and see and be corrected further by the master. Pray for clarity to understand that Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's more than a great moral teacher. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And pray for clarity to understand that the cost of following him is great. But it's worth it. Let us pray for these things. Let us pray that we might have them all by God's amazing grace. Amen. Heavenly Father, We know what we know only because you have revealed it to us. And there is so much that we know. We know that you love us. We know that you are merciful and good and kind and, and that you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, that his blood has washed us clean. We know so much and we're thankful, but there is so much more for us to learn. Give us humility to know we don't have all the answers. 
Give us growth in our sanctification by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able now, please rise as we sing 433, Amazing Grace. you go forth this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.